Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, right now there are very important people in our lives that you've allowed us the privilege to have a relationship with. You've connected us to them. They may be people we work with, people in our families, friends, maybe people we actually know from our past, maybe a neighbor. But Father, there are people, maybe somebody in the marketplace that we see on a regular basis, we go to the store or whatever. There are people that you have put in our orbit and they're very important people. Because each one of them is a person, a soul for whom Christ died. And Father, right now, we want to pray for those folks. So I want to ask you, church family, just get in your, your sanctified imagination, your mind's eye, and just picture those people. Maybe one, two, three. Just picture them just for a moment. I, I like to picture myself escorting people through the up to the throne of grace, up to God's throne, just kind of in it, that throne room. Just I have a picture in my mind of what that, at least my mind, what it looks like. But Father, right now, as sons and daughters, we want to escort them and present them before your throne. And Father, we're asking for a favor. Would you do something in their life that leverages the circumstances of their life so that they begin to lean toward Jesus and would you allow us somehow, some way, in our relationship with them, in our connections with them, in, in our conversations with them, would you, in our work with them, or our engagements with them, would you allow us somehow, some way, to participate in leaning them toward Jesus, toward faith, toward hope, toward salvation, toward the cross, and ultimately toward the resurrection, that they may come to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and as Savior. And so we hold them up before you. Father, I would also ask as a favor, would you open up opportunities for us to make disciples? To have God conversations throughout the normal course of our work week and our work days and the normal course of the rhythms of our lives that you would place people in our path that would want to know why we do what we do, why we say what we say, why we believe what we believe, that, Lord, there would be something about our lives that compels others to ask questions. So, Father, would you, would you open up those opportunities and present those? And, Father, may we be on point and be ready to, to share our heart and to answer the questions that are being asked. Would you give us a grace for evangelism? to share our faith. And Father, beyond that, to make disciples, to take that next step and take someone through a purple book, take someone through a study, take someone and, and literally escort them from point A to point B to point C and beyond to help them walk this out. So Father, I thank you for every person that's here tonight. Would you open our eyes that we may see, our ears that we may hear, and our hearts that we may know the truth that makes us free. We posture ourselves even now in this moment as disciples, as followers of Jesus. And we open our hearts and we open our minds and we say, Father, would you by your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, would you lead us and guide us into all truth as we open your word. We love you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. You know, all of us have a Sonia in our lives or or someone in our lives who the Lord has divinely appointed. So keep your radar on.
Engage your days with eyes wide open, because that's really our heart and our desire. So thank you for joining us tonight, Journey Through Acts. We're continuing to move through this. So I'm going to go quickly through some of this. This has been our root, uh, really our root, I'm going to move that balloon there. It's been our root scripture, so to speak, and uh, I really do appreciate that, sweet. So, uh, but you will receive power, that's dunamis, we get the word dynamite from that. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be, there it is, my witnesses. What does a witness do? Answer the questions. Great. And so you will be my witnesses. You'll answer the questions in Jerusalem. That's your immediate area, Judea, larger, Samaria, much larger, and across the tracks. Samaria was those dirty Gentiles that Jews didn't talk to. And he said, not only are you going to handle Jerusalem and Judea, we're going to send you to the place you really don't want to go, and that's Samaria, and, uh, and to the end of the earth. So that's kind of our root passage right there as we study. And that's our root scripture up there, the harvest vision, the four Ds, to discover who you are in Christ, to develop as a disciple, to grow, to be deployed. That means to go out and leak life everywhere you go, to overflow, which is what we're talking about on Sundays right now. And then also that fourth D is to disrupt. I mean, because everywhere we go, we bring Jesus, and Jesus is a disruptor. And that's in a positive sense, not a negative sense. And all the word disrupt means is to break the, break the chain. I think I have a, there it is, a break or interruption. This is the, the definition of disrupt. A break or interruption in the normal course or continuation of some activity or process. And synonyms are be like break up, to disintegrate, to fracture, to fragment to disturb, or to create an upheaval. That's exactly what Jesus does. He interrupts, he interrupts or disturbs or disrupts the normal course of our lives. And we welcome that. I welcome that as an 18-year-old young person about to graduate from high school when Jesus disrupted my life. He showed up and disrupted everything, and it changed everything after that. I love this quote from Hugh Halter. I shared this on Sunday. I shared it with you last Wednesday. We love Jesus as a baby on Christmas, all right? We all identify with that. And Jesus risen from the grave on Easter. Remember, white robes, angels flying around, epiphany, floating, all that. But somehow we miss Jesus the man. See, what Sonia needs, and I thank you for asking that question. I'll just answer, try to answer the question. I'm trying to be a witness there, Jason. But bringing up Sonia, all, all that's happening here is that Jesus understands the caricature of Jesus the baby and of Jesus, you know, the, the whatever. She understands those kind of religious symbols, but what she doesn't know is Jesus the man, the one who's touchable and tangible. Hugh Halter wrote another book. He wrote this one, Flesh, which I'm actually in the middle of, but he wrote another book called The Tangible Kingdom. You have to understand, the kingdom of God is tangible. It's touchable. It's not just some esoteric thing out there in the clouds that's untouchable, unattainable, mysterious. The kingdom is practical and it works in everyday life. And so what Sonia and all of us at some point needed to see was this. But somehow we miss Jesus the man. The man. Remember he was called and he called himself when he was on this earth the son of man. Not just the son of God, but the son of man. That means in the flesh. Somehow we miss Jesus the man, the teacher, the sage, the rebel, the subversive, king, the local hero, the neighborhood friend. And so this idea of disruption is that, is that Jesus shows up as the person of Christ in our lives 
and disrupts our own lives. But then we become disruptive because we show up with Jesus. And right now, whether it's Sonia or anybody you're working with, the Lord is disrupting things. He's interrupting things. He's disintegrating things so that we're open to the gospel, the good news. So that's what's happening. So let's keep moving. On the journey, we're going to talk about where Paul had an opportunity to encourage the leaders that were in the church at Ephesus. We're now in the third missionary journey. So this thing has gone on. And if you'll remember, as we've tracked through the book of Acts, Paul has gone and he has established works, uh, outposts you could call them, small churches, house churches, handful of people there, handful of people there, uh, in Corinth and Greece and Asia. All of Asia's heard the gospel based out of, he was in Ephesus for three years. And in those three years, he sowed and poured into them. But remember, he's gone back. This is his third trip through all those churches that he's been teaching. And he's coming back through, and he's doing it to encourage them, to check on them. And then also, we get the book of 1 Corinthians out of that, and 2 Corinthians. He's having to undo some messes. Remember what a messy stall means? It means there's a great harvest. But if you don't have a messy stall, let's just call it what it is, right? There's no poop in the stall. That's exactly what that scripture means in Proverbs. If there's no mess in the stall, there's no harvest because there's no oxen. But where there is a great harvest, there's also a great mess, right? Because the kingdom's messy. What we do is messy. And so he's going back through and he's having to clean up some messes. And if you read the book, of particularly 1 Corinthians, it was a train wreck. And so he goes back through, he's having to bring correction. That's why he wrote the letter to the Corinthians to correct what was going on. Correct not only doctrine, but behaviors and all kinds of stuff that was happening. So people always laugh, and I've joked, I've told you this, people say, we want to get back to the Bible. I'm like, really, have you read the book of 1 Corinthians? You sure you want to go back to biblical times? I mean, really, it was a train wreck. Because these were all brand new churches. And here's the thing, we have to always remember, take it off of the storyboard. Take it out of the fairy book. These were real people dealing with real situations in a very politically and violent era of existence. And in that first century, it was politically volatile. Rome was always challenging. And then not only was Rome dominating the Jews and the Jewish people in that whole part of the world, but there was rebellions and outbreaks, and so it was always tenuous and volatile and disruptive in nature. So we always have to remember, these churches were planted in dangerous times. This is, there was persecution, and uh, even all around when Jesus was uh, making his move in Jerusalem just before the crucifixion, I mean, it was, it was going, it was nuts. It was going crazy. And people were actually getting killed right and left by the Roman government. If, if, oh, you're a Christian? Doom. You're dead. Oh, you're a Christian? Great. We'll go crucify you with the others up on the hill. They were crucifying him right and left. So it was a dangerous time to be a follower of Jesus. We think we're persecuted because somebody doesn't like the bumper sticker on our car. Or somebody doesn't like our po political persuasion or our value. We think that's persecution. Folks, that's not really persecution. That's called disagreement. So we don't really know a whole lot about that here. Paul goes back and now it brings us to this point where he's now going to meet with and talk to and encourage the Ephesian elders, the leaders at Ephesus. Remember, he loved Ephesus, spent three years there. And because of the ministry in Ephesus, all of Asia was reached with the gospel. 
And let me see if I've got that. Oh, I think I took the maps off. So anyway, if I have the maps, we'll look at them later. So we're going to dive right in. So you can read in your Bible, or I'm going to go ahead and have the Scriptures up here. That's easier for me, actually, to navigate. Acts chapter 20, verse 17, we pick it up. It says this, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So Paul says, come meet me here. He didn't want to go back to Ephesus, and we're told earlier in the chapter why. It's because he had spent three years there. He was trying to get to Jerusalem, if you'll remember, because he was taking an offering to them. The Christians of Jerusalem were suffering. There was a drought in the area, and they needed help. So he had collected from all these church outposts an offering. So he's going to take a goodwill offering back to Jerusalem to help the Christians that were suffering persecution there. And, and help take care of them. But he didn't want to go back through Ephesus because he knew if he stepped foot in Ephesus, he would never get out because he knew so many people there. So he avoids Ephesus, but from Miletus, sends for the elders to come meet with him outside the city. So it's just a pragmatic thing. The reason I share some little detail with you is because that lends itself to the fact that he was a real guy on a real mission doing real things with real people. So we always need to remember, this all, these are real events. These are not fairy tales. Hope that makes sense. So from Elias, he said, he called the elders of the church to come, verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them. Now, he launches into this beautiful speech that we're going to read. And really, it reads like a letter. And it has very much the flavor of Scripture. It has the flavor of much like the letters that he wrote to Philippi, that he wrote to Colossae, the, church in Col the, the Colossian church, um, the church in Ephesus, obviously. And so it'll be, it's interesting as we read through this, it'll read like you're reading one of those letters because he's addressing these leaders and people he loved and he did life with. So he's going to give them some things because he's on his way somewhere else. And you're going to hear Paul's heart in this as a shepherd. So remember, he's addressing the overseers, the elders of the church, which today, if you were to translate that directly, it's more like the pastors of the church. They were the shepherds. And so here is what he says, and it starts with that quote. Paul speaking to them says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. We've already read through this, and we know, remember, everywhere he went, he got in trouble, right? Why? Because Paul was disruptive. He came preaching Jesus, and he, where, did, where did he always start? Do you remember? He always started in the synagogue, unless there wasn't one there. How many people, if there was not a synagogue in a particular village or community, why is that so? Somebody remember? They had to have ten men... Ten Jew, Orthodox Jewish men to start a synagogue. So where he went, if there wasn't a synagogue, because there wasn't ten Jewish people in there willing to assemble and start one. And so, but he always started at the synagogue, and he would always come in and he would preach Jesus in the synagogue, because that's where he started. Remember, to the Jews first, then the Gentiles? That's what he was doing. He was following that pattern. So he's saying, I came, I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with humility, and look, with tears, trials... Some of those trials were the Jews were, were trying to run him out because once he started preaching Jesus, basically he was taking the old covenant and the old way of, of, 
that they operated by and flipping it upside down. He's flipping the script on them and bringing them what the book of Hebrews calls a new and better covenant, the new covenant. So they were like, whoa, wait a minute. You're telling us our whole way of life is wrong? You're telling us that we've been doing it wrong? That Jesus has come to change all this? And he's like, yep, unfortunately, that's true. It's wrong. And, and we, there's a new and better covenant. You're operating out of an old covenant. And so... Every time he did that, it stirred up this, this mob. And remember, he was beaten. He was almost stoned. I mean, they almost killed him. So a lot of things happened. He says, with tears, with trials, that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And then he says this, how I, Remember how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was probably. In other words, he's saying, I didn't hold anything back from you. I, I gave everything I had. Look what he says. And teaching you in public... And from house to house. In public, he preached in the squares, he preached in the synagogue, and he was in the house churches, in the homes, preaching, teaching Jesus as the Christ. He was taking, he was actually operating out of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, or what we call the Apostolic Mandate. He was actually doing it, making disciples of all the nations, teaching them everything, you know, to, you know, everything I've taught you, basically. So he says, he says, I didn't hold anything back and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. One quick little caveat, the difference between Jewish thinking and Greek thinking. By the way, we as Americans, we are of the Greek side of the spectrum. Greeks are much more detailed. They're much more um, specific they're much more linear in scope. A Jewish thinker is actually holistic in their thinking. In other words, you ask a Jewish person what time it is, they'll tell you what time and they'll appreciate the beauty of a watch. You ask a Greek person what time it is, they'll tell you what time it is and they'll tell you how the watch works. Because they, they know about all the little pieces. They break everything apart. And so we've talked about that a lot, but it's important to understand he had to present the gospel of Jesus Christ different to the Jews than he did the Greeks. On Mars Hill, when he, pre when he preached Jesus, he had to come at them with a very different approach. And if you remember in one of the letters, he says, I become all things to all men so that I by, by some means win some. So Paul's heart was, to this group, I'm going to have to present this way. To this group, I'm going to have to present this way. And so in, in our own dealings with people, you have to discern where people are and, and meet them where they are. You cannot talk to everybody the same way. That's why I struggle a bit with some canned approaches to evangelism or, or just using a track that's kind of linear and it's one way and it's, this is it. And it's not it. Every person is different. And the beauty about having a relationship with the living Lord is that He meets us where we are to, to have a relationship with us. So it's not just religion per se, rules, do's and don'ts. It's a relationship with somebody who's alive. And the, the beauty about how much God loves you and me is that He meets us where we are, but He refuses to leave us there. But He does meet us where we are. He doesn't say, get rid of everything, then I'll have a conversation with you, and I might. No, He approaches us, woos us, draws us, and He meets us where we are, just like we are. When I was back in the day, when I was a young Southern Baptist preacher boy, 
And, and in a traditional church, we, we sang a song, Just As I Am, without one plea. Just as I am. And that was how we would come to him. And at the end of the service, we sang all nine verses if nobody moved. I'm just saying. If nobody came to the altar, we were going to sing through the whole thing. You did too? There were nine verses in that book. But, uh, but it was a beautiful song. I actually love Yeah, or keep going. Somebody's going to move out of exhaustion at some point. But it was a beautiful song. I love the song. Just as I am without one plea. His blood was shed for me. I mean, just... That's how we come to Him, just as we are. And He approaches us and He meets us where we are. And I love that about Jesus. And then He loves us so much, He just doesn't stop there. He says, hey, come walk with me. Come follow me. I'm going to lead you out. And we grow from there. So that's the beauty of it. So the difference between Jews and Greek. So really it's the difference between Jews being an Eastern thinker, a Greek being a Western thinker. And we are of the Greek persuasion. That's why we want to know how everything works. And that's why I keep challenging us to think a little more Jewish when I say, quit asking how and start saying, wow. So now when somebody brings something to me and go, oh, you're not going to believe what God did. And if it's like, whoa, I just go, wow. And I just try to shut my brain off and not just go, wait a minute, how did that, how in the world that, I just, I've just tried to stop that. And the older I get, birthday today, thank you very much, 57 years young. And I, it's like the older I get, the more I'm leaning into wow instead of how. And for years, it's always been about how, how, how would that work? How did God do that? Why would God do that? How and why, how and why? And now it's becoming wow. Just wow. Just take it like it is. That's actually more Jewish in thought, more holistic in nature. Just take it, receive it, and be grateful for it. So I'm learning. I'm growing in that. That's an ongoing process. So he says this, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God. Remember, this is the gospel. Turning to God. That's what he's saying. Turning toward God. That's what repentance is. Turning toward God. It's not, it's not groveling at the altar for forgiveness. That's saying you're sorry. It's different. Repentance literally is a turning. So, and, and if you need a picture, if you're a picture, it's me going this way, my way, and then I turn. Repentance means to turn and go back the other way. So he's saying turning toward God. That's what the gospel is about. There it is turning toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a basic gospel. Now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now he's telling the Ephesian elders, this is what's about to happen. Look what he says. Remember, we already said he's going to Jerusalem, right? And we know that because he's been gathering an offering from the churches, and he's going to take that to those in Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirits. The same word is compelled. It's actually, the word means to be bound. So he's saying, I'm bound by the Spirit. I'm bound by the Spirit. I've got to do this. So if you say, I'm compelled to do something, I'm bound to do something, it means literally, I can't help it. I have to do this. So he's telling them, uh, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, bound by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. I don't know if you remember the prophecy that was given to Paul Remember when he got knocked off of his high horse when the Lord showed up and said, why are you persecuting me? Right at the very beginning, remember? He was Saul at the time, remember? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remember that voice came out of heaven? He got knocked off the high horse, right? And he was blinded, remember? So he was blinded, but then when he 
uh, was prophesied over, what, three days later? It was several days. I can't remember the exact details. When they laid hands on him, remember it said scales fell from his eyes. And then he was prophesied over, and he was basically told this, that he was prophesied that he's going, the Lord was going to show him how much he must suffer for his sake. What a prophecy, right? Woohoo, let's go. He's saying, he's saying, you're going to pay a high price for this. But there's going to be great fruit, and many are going to turn. So Paul received that word, and look what he's saying. He's echoing that. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Because everywhere Paul's gone, there's been trouble, right? There's been disruption. There's been chaos. There's been tumult. It's been difficult. So, verse 23. Except that, the Holy Spirit testifies to me. This is why I didn't know, except he knows this. The Holy Spirit testifies to me, tells me, in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Wow, that's exciting, isn't it? So he's like going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to wait him there, but he does know this. Probably imprisonment, probably going to jail, probably who knows. Persecution, who knows. Afflictions. Verse 24, I love, I love his heart, but he's going to go. He's compelled, he's constrained to go. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. That's the heart of Paul. Look, I know I may lose my life over this thing, but you know what? It doesn't matter. I, I'm not, it's okay. He says, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, and it's this, to testify to the good news, that's what the gospel is, the good news of the grace of God, the gospel of God's grace. The gospel of grace. Have you heard that term before? Now, if you've been around me for 30 seconds, you've heard grace, right? Grace, as opposed to law. This is one of the places that has spoken to me in terms of what the gospel is. It's the good news of the grace of God. I remember Dr. Frankie Rainey, my, one of my college professors, my Greek professor, he, he would always, he had a little acronym for grace, G-R-A-C-E, say God's riches at Christ's expense. We get everything that God has at the expense of what Jesus paid for on the cross. God's riches at Christ's expense. Isn't that rich? Just, boy, let that settle. He'd say that almost every day in our class as he brutalized us with the Greek language. It was intense, but it was beautiful. But I love that man to testify the gospel of the grace of God, the good news of grace. And that's, that's what gets me up every morning, knowing God's grace. Every morning we wake up, we ought to wake up, bounce out of bed and say, man, I hit the lottery. I'm breathing today. I'm awake today. You may be like me. You may have old injuries from I raced motocross, played football. And so when I get up out of bed, it's snap, crackle, and pop. I mean, every, bo every bone, every joint's doing something. But I am so grateful to be able to get up out of bed and do what God's called me to do. I get to do this. Why? Because it's the good news of the grace of God. Man, it's, just, it's a game changer. It's a life changer. And so Paul says, that's what I do. That's what I do. As long as I get to do that, I want to finish the race. Verse 25, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. This is where Paul gets kind of sad here. He's saying, look, we're not going to see each other again. Paul's, in Paul's mind, he's like, I won't be back. I'm not making it back. 
because he didn't know what awaited for him in Jerusalem. Now his heart, if y'all remember, we covered this a time or two ago, he actually wanted to go to Rome, which on the map, it's the opposite way of Jerusalem. But he wanted to go to Rome because he, had, he knew that if he could win Rome, he could win the known world, right? Influence the influencers. Lead the leaders. Win the winners. That's, what you, that's one of the greatest ways to proliferate the gospel is to influence influencers. So he knew if he could go to Rome, the gospel would go everywhere. That was hard, but he didn't know if he'd even make it out of Jerusalem because Jerusalem's still very volatile. So he didn't know. So he says, Behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He said, I probably won't see you guys again. Look what happens. Verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day. He's just saying, I say to you. Just, it, it, sometimes we get lost in biblical terminology. Put yourself in the place of a human being here. I'm telling you this, that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink, I didn't hold back, is what he's saying, from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He's saying, no one's blood, I did what I was supposed to do. In fact, I can leave with a clear conscience. I've done everything I know to do. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is why he's addressing the elders, the overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So he's telling them, look, take care of the flock. Take care of the flock. Tend the sheep, so to speak. He's just giving them a charge as sort of a last word before he goes on to the next thing. Verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, and this is, this is the truth, he, he knows that after he leaves, after his leadership influence goes away, something's, something's going to happen because there's a very real enemy. Can I get an amen? amen? There's an enemy who wants to literally destroy the work of God. It's malevolence, demonic in nature. He wants to destroy it. We've all experienced that at some level or another. A lot of times when people hear the gospel, it's almost like a seed gets planted. And then when they go out the door, it's almost like birds come in and, and pick the seed off. Kind of like one of the parables of the sower. When seed is scattered out on the ground, and if it doesn't take into the soil, the birds come, the Bible says, and they actually carry it off. It's the, it's the demonic interruption of the seed of the gospel, the seminal word of God being planted in a heart. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So he's using the, the verbiage, the metaphor of sheep and wolves. And he says this, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. He's saying, look, once I leave and my influence is gone, gone there's going to be some, um, it's going to be some heresy. There's going to be some things that get off. They're twisted. How many of y'all know the enemy is pretty smart? Have y'all figured this out by now? The devil's pretty sharp. He doesn't come at you with a blatant lie. He will. But many times, it's what Bob Goff calls in his book, um, Everybody Always. He calls it a quarter turn. He says in, in, in some of the older vineyards in Italy, they actually have people whose lifetime career it is is to go down through the cellars of the oldest, most expensive wines in the world. And all they do, their entire job, is to go turn a bottle a quarter turn. And then they go to the next bottle. Quarter turn. They go to the next bottle. 
quarter turn. It keeps the sediment from settling and the wine from spoiling. And their entire job for years, for decades, is a quarter turn, quarter turn, quarter turn. And isn't that like what the enemy does? He doesn't take the bottle out and smash it. That'd be way too obvious. So he comes along and just a quarter turn. He takes truth and he turns it just a quarter turn. You know, if you have two parallel lines, but they're not really parallel, and they seem to be running along the same track together, if they're one degree off, down the road, somewhere, they're going to begin to diverge. And the longer it's let go, over time, they can be miles apart. But it was so subtle in the beginning, you never saw it. One degree, quarter turn, that's all it takes. And the enemy's smart, he's strategic, and so he'll... he'll Look what it says, speaking twisted things. Think of that in terms of a quarter turn. It's all it takes to disrupt. A quarter turn, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Remember we talked about him being in Ephesus for three years in Asia, and all of Asia heard the gospel. One other thing I want to say, it's important. Go back to verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He uses the verbiage, the metaphor of a flock. One thing I learned a long time ago is that connection is protection. I love church folk, but here's what I know. I've been in this 35 years, so I'm not a newbie to this. And I've watched over the years that people who attend church sporadically who never really get involved. They attend, they show up, check their box and they go. But they never actually get involved, never serve, never commit, never step over the line. Those are the ones, are they not, Pastor, who you see over, the over a period of time get picked off. And you know, it's not always obvious. It's just they just disappear and quit showing up. They're not mad at anybody, but what they don't know is that the enemy has just picked them off because they're not connected. Connection is protection. The sheep that get left alone by the wolf or by the predator are the ones that are in the middle of the flock because they're safe, they're secure, they're surrounded. Now, I know that sounds like a, just a silly little metaphor, but I've watched this for 35 years. When Annette and I were not pastoring a church, when we first moved to Tennessee a number of years ago, I understood this principle. And so we joined not one, but three life groups. We were church junkies because I understood the principle of protect, connection is protection. We were in three life groups. I got on the worship team. I was a lead guitar player for our worship team on Wednesday nights. So I was lead guitar player, three life groups, one of which we led, the others we attended. Then I, I got involved with the, with the staff. I wasn't on staff. I had another job working for Dave Ramsey, and then I did, I wrote curriculum, a discipleship curriculum for our small groups ministry, and then I became a coach and a teacher for our small groups ministry, so I, I, te I taught teachers, so to speak, all the life group leaders, I was one of several, and basically I did everything almost that I do here, but I was doing it because I understood that I needed to be connected. And I needed to be in the middle of it because I would be protected. And sure enough, that was what created another vortex whereby now we are, we're here. So connection is protection. This is sort of a shot over the bow, and it's just a, a lesson. If you don't want to get picked off, get involved. Get connected. Get 
Get your hands dirty with people. Get on a serve team. Join a group. Get involved. Because that's where you're the safest. I'm preaching to the choir right here. You, you're, you all are. So, but you know this by experience, but I've watched it over and over for 35 years. It says, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God. This is Paul being kind of formal. He's just sort of giving a speech here. I commend you to God. I give you over to God and to the word of His grace. There's that word again, grace. The word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He's just waxing really eloquent here, but he's saying some beautiful things. That the word of His grace, the message of His grace, that's what that means. I, I commend you to God and to the message of His grace, which is able to build you up. That's what grace does. The message of grace builds us up. We're growing. It's like bodybuilding. It's like you're getting bigger. You're getting more ripped. You're getting more defined. You're growing, getting stronger. You're, he's building you up, and the message of grace just builds you up and builds you up. And what it does, it grows us up to become mature. Ephesians, the book of the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, he talks about this idea of growing up into all things in Christ. He talks about maturity. He even says, grow up. Growing up itself in love. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what the message of grace does. He says this, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He said, I didn't come here to take anything from you. He says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. What he's saying, it's kind of code language, kind of hard to understand. He's actually, he was bivocational. He actually had his own trade. He mended tents and made tents and repaired tents. And he worked with his own hands while he was doing all the work for the church. He took care of himself. I didn't come here to be a burden to you. I came here and worked with my own hands so that I wouldn't be a burden from you and so that I wouldn't taking anything from you. He just says, you yourselves know these hands ministered or served my necessities and to those who were with me. So together they were able to work and, and, and in a sense support themselves. Verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. All Paul is doing is reminding them, look, you need to understand something. We want to help those who literally cannot help themselves. We want to take care of them. I love that. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. You have to understand, this is Paul who spent three years with these men, pouring into them, raising them up. The only reason they were leaders and elders is because Paul had poured his life into them. So he was close to them. He had affection for them. And now he kneels down with them to pray. Remember what he said? Well, I'm not going to see you again. Paul understood that he would probably never be back that way and that he would probably not live through this. So he kneels, look what he does right there in the midst. He knelt down and prayed with them. What a beautiful scene. And so we end out the chapter with this. And there was much weeping on the part of all. Man, isn't that beautiful? They wept together, knowing that this was the closing of a chapter, not just of the Bible. It's the closing of a season 
of ministry that was extremely fruitful for an entire nation. Asia was reached with the gospel. So they know this is about, everything's about to change. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship as he embarked to go on the next leg of the journey. So their heart was heavy because he said, you're not going to see me again. What this tells me about the heart of Paul is that Paul didn't just, he wasn't a robot. Sometimes we see the Apostle Paul, depending on how you've pictured him or how he's been portrayed, as this hard, strong, bold as a lion, in-your-face leader. But we see a different side here, don't we? We see somebody who's tender, somebody who has compassion, somebody who has spent time fathering the next generation of leaders, and now he kneels in the midst of them and weeps. And together they weep. And so to me, this is just yet another picture. We see another facet of Paul's personality. And it just gives credence to the fact that he was human. Paul was not a superstar Christian. It's interesting how we'll see somebody like the Apostle Paul or Peter and we'll put them up on a pedestal. And Paul himself is just saying, look, you know... I'm just one of many who God says, you're gonna, you've got a role to play, you've got a job to do, and I'm just trying to do my job. And so, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but several times in my, in my life I've been in scenarios where a police officer or a firefighter stepped in and rendered aid, and, and I had the privilege of going to that individual and saying, thank you for what you do. You know what, without fail, they've always said to me, just doing my job. I always say thank you for saying that, just doing my job. Because they understand that's what they're, that's what they're commissioned to do. When I pastored in Abilene, we had, uh, our church was about 45 to 55%, depending, of military from Dias Air Force Base. And so I got in the habit of, and I still do it to this day if I see anybody in uniform, of always going to them and saying, thank you for your service, thank you for what you do. Thank you for keeping the peace. Thank you for being on mission. Thank you for keeping us safe. Thank you for protecting us. I do that. I do it everywhere I go. still do it. Annette knows that if we're going somewhere and we're walking through an airport and there's a group of guys over there with uniforms, I'm going to go say thanks. I mean, it just, it's automatic pilot for me. And I really mean it. It's genuine for my heart. And with my dad being a firefighter and a first responder, I just, that's so in my blood. Without fail, just doing our job. Just doing our job. Thank you, but I'm just doing my job. Paul's mentality was this. I'm doing my job. I'm doing what I was called to do. It doesn't make me special. It doesn't make me any more, any less than anyone else. He said, I'm just doing my assignment. And just to encourage you in something. You want to find joy in this life? You want to find a reason to get up on Tuesday morning as opposed to Friday or Saturday morning? Instead of, oh, oh God, it's Monday, it's, oh, wow, thank God it's Monday, T-G-I-M. And then T-G-I-T, thank God it's Tuesday. T-G-I-W, thank God it's Wednesday. You want to wake up like that? Find your mission. Get clarity on your assignment from God, and you'll get up early every morning. You'll bound out of bed because you know you're on a mission. That's Paul. Just doing my job, fulfilling my assignment. And so we're going to continue on the journey. This was a little bit of different 
tone than what we've been, where we actually get a, almost like a piece of Scripture or like a letter he's crafted to leaders. So I hope you're encouraged by that. So let's land the plane. We'll pray. We'll be done tonight. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the heart of Paul, for a man who served, a man who later will say, I've finished my course, I've run my race. So thank you that this is a man who ran his race well. I thank you that we get to see a glimpse into this man's heart as he wept with the leaders that he had raised up, those that he had discipled, those he had spent three years with, and now was leaving them in charge of the flock, was warning them of what could happen and what could what would probably happen. He was warning them, but he was also exhorting and encouraging and admonishing them and lifting them up and holding them up, charging them to be faithful to shepherd the flock. So I thank you for the heart. We see a father here, a spiritual father with his spiritual sons. We see a coach here, training, equipping, teaching. We see an apostle here, sending releasing those that he had discipled into their destiny, into their ministry. So thank you for this man's heart. Thank you for his example. Father, may we too discover our mission, discover our mandate, discover our calling, and have clarity on it, and that that calling would begin to drive our lives, not drive us into the ground, but drive us to life. That we'd become life leakers, and we would live lives of overflow. So, Lord, I thank you for my friends here tonight. Bless them, encourage them. Even this week as we go out of this place, would you give us opportunities to leak out and to overflow into other people's lives? And pray for the Sonyas in our lives, those who are all around us and in our orbit that you've placed there. Father, may we have the heart of Paul for them to make disciples and raise up leaders. We love you and honor you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen and amen.